Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Dairy farmers in Vermont are facing tough times, but 15 miles north in Quebec, it's a different scene. Go in Quebec, drive around in the, on the country, in the countryside, look at the farms. The tin is painted, the tractors are put away. It's not, there are nice farms in the States, I'm not saying they're all run down, but there's a lot more farms that are run down in the States than in Canada. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll hear how farmers on both sides of the border are faring. Plus, we'll look at pot growers grabbing up warehouse space in advance of a marijuana boom. And stone walls are a staple of New England, but do they have a deeper meaning? Stone walls are, to me, the largest physical remnant of human failure in the world, maybe except for the pyramids. Also, on the night after Dr. King was murdered, the godfather of soul played Boston. We'll bring you the story of how he may have saved the city. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Almost a year ago, New Hampshire Public Radio's Peter Biello joined us to discuss allegations about mismanaged care at the Manchester VA Hospital. In response, then-White House Secretary of Veterans Affairs David Shulkin pledged to help. But now Shulkin is out of a job. He says he was fired by President Trump. Shulkin's departure left veterans in Manchester wondering about the future of their care and whether this decision may mean a push toward the privatization of veteran care. Peter Biello joins us once again. Welcome back to Next. John, always happy to talk to you. Well, why don't you take our listeners back to the story that you reported for us some months ago, uh, a story about the Manchester VA. Why don't you just remind us of what exactly is happening? In July of 2017, whistleblowers came forward publicly through an article in the Boston Globe uh, about problems with care at the Manchester VA and also problems with uh, some of the sanitization of the facility. As far as the care goes, essentially there were many patients with uh, certain spine conditions that uh, the whistleblowers alleged were allowed to get worse, uh, so much worse, in fact, that, that some patients ended up uh, permanently disabled, some of them in wheelchairs and diapers. And also they were alleging that there were flies in the operating room, some of the surgical equipment wasn't properly uh, sanitized before surgeries, um, it, it, and pictures associated with this just set off a firestorm that really caught a lot of people's attention and ultimately uh, resulted in the removal of three of the four top officials at the Manchester VA. And then following that, uh, a couple days after the Boston Globe article came out, there was a huge flood at the Manchester VA. 61,000 square feet of the VA was flooded. Uh, and since then, they've been trying their best to, to make progress on both of those issues, the flood and the allegations of mismanaged care. And you say it drew a lot of attention from the public, but, but also from the VA secretary at the time, David Shulkin. How did he respond to these reports and these allegations? 
David Shulkin came to the Manchester VA in early August of 2017. He spoke with the whistleblowers. He spoke with uh, those members of the leadership team that he had not removed. Uh, and he pledged to provide more money to the Manchester VA, which he did. Uh, some of that money had already been on track to go to the Manchester VA, but some of it was new. And he also set up a task force called uh, the VA New Hampshire Vision 2025 Task Force, which was set up to take a look at what the Manchester VA actually needed going forward uh, to 2025. And that task force has recently wrapped up its work, and we're still awaiting the final version of the report that would spell out its recommendations to uh, what's called the Special Medical Advisory Group in D.C. Were the whistleblowers that you've been in contact with, were they happy with the response from Secretary Shulkin, and what's their reaction been to his ouster in the Trump administration? The whistleblower I've been in closest contact with is Dr. Ed Coyce, who is the unofficial leader of this group of about a dozen whistleblowers. And he had kept in close contact with uh, David Shelkin ever since he came in August. They exchanged emails every now and then. Dr. Coyce said when he learned that Shelkin had been removed from his position uh, that it, was, it felt like a punch in the stomach. We've certainly heard from the whistleblowers you've talked to, and we've heard from a number of people uh, who are advocates for veterans, that they don't want to move toward uh, the type of private system that some in the Trump administration clearly prefer. Many outsiders outside the system might look at what we found at the Manchester VA and other facilities where there were problems uh, with either the sanitary conditions or problems with the quality of care and say, well, isn't it time to try something new? Isn't it time to try something that veers away from the old VA model? What you are describing is uh, a common argument against the VA system as a whole, and it's not necessarily a new one. These incidents do occur in the system, and they do make news. Uh, what doesn't often make news is that the VA often does quite a lot of very good work. It's, it's, it's hard to talk about one without fairly talking about the other, is that, yes, there are problems, but there are also things that work really well. Um, and that would be the opposing argument. Uh, in fact, some may say that, that incidents like the Manchester VA and, and what we've seen in Washington, D.C. and in Oregon recently, those are the outliers. Uh, at least that's what they say. Um, so there's an argument to be made on both sides, and it's worth mentioning that, that the VA actually does do a lot of good work for a lot of veterans. What happens next in the story of the Manchester VA? The VA New Hampshire Vision 2025 Task Force is going to release the final report sometime later this month. They're handing it up to the uh, Special Medical Advisory Group. And so they're just making progress on reopening the services that were closed from the flood. Peter Biello is the All Things Considered host at New Hampshire Public Radio. He's also a reporter who's been covering veterans affairs issues in that state. Peter, as always, thanks for your time. Thank you. Dairy farmers in Vermont are experiencing some of the hardest times in recent memory. The State Agency of Agriculture says 12 farms have gone out of business this year, bringing the number of working dairy farms down to around 750 compared to about 1,100 10 years ago. But across the border in Canada, dairy farms are thriving. The reason is a complex system that regulates the supply of milk and sets the price that farmers receive. VPR's John Dillon went to Quebec recently to learn more about the Canadian system of supply management. It's a short drive from Jacques Rainville's place in Highgate Centre to Saint-Armand, Quebec. And along the way, Rainville, whose family came from Quebec, 
points out yet another farm gone fallow. Gone, no cows here. I could have named them all down the road here. We got another one on the corner here. Beautiful farm, nice little family farm, no cows. It's sad to see it happen. Like his father before him, Rainville farmed for over 30 years. He drives a milk truck for work now, but says he's still a farmer at heart. We're visiting Canada with his cousin, Phil Parent, who has a dairy farm in nearby Enosburg, Vermont. As we approach the border with Quebec, Rainville says he thinks the Canadian system, which balances milk supply with consumer demand through production quotas, offers a valuable lesson for Vermont. The buyers react to oversupply. They know we have to get rid of it, and it's a downward spiral. It's going to go down to who can produce it the cheapest in the world. Okay, we got to get our wallets out. We stop for a minute at the Canadian border. Hi. Hello. Hi. Yeah. And you, sir? Jacques Grenville, Highgate Center here. And where are you going today? Oh, we're going to uh, the Kaiser Farm. Just a few miles down the road, Hans Kaiser and his son milk about 95 cows. A tall silo next to the barn bears the farm's name, Hepatica, for one of the first wildflowers of spring. Got a special visit? Oh, it's beautiful. The senior Kaiser is tall, he wears overalls and rubber boots, and has an accent that doesn't sound Quebecois. He came here from Switzerland in the 1970s. In the barn's milk room are six people with strong ties to the land. The Kaisers, two other farmers from Quebec, plus Rainville and his cousin. Introductions happen in French and English. The Canadians practically talk over one another as they explain and praise their system of supply management. Here's Hans Kaiser. I came to Canada in 75. We always had this quota system. I believe we have the best system in the world. I, I have no uh, doubt about this. The quotas in Canada can be bought and sold, and they're quite valuable, several million dollars or more for an average farm. The price farmers are paid is also controlled. It's established based on the cost of producing milk on what's deemed to be an economically efficient farm. The system is not financed by the government, although it has led to higher retail prices for milk than in the U.S. And even though the quotas are expensive, banks lend money to buy them. Quebec farmer Gerard Vemelin says, why wouldn't they lend? They know you're, you're going to have that revenue. Well, they're going to get paid. The farmers do a rough calculation to compare the price that Canadians receive compared to their Vermont counterparts. It turns out the Quebec farmers are getting the equivalent of $24 for 100 pounds of milk, while a few miles over the border, Vermonter Phil Parent is paid about $14 a hundredweight. The comparison is sobering for Parent. He says the Agrimark co-op told him recently that milk prices were headed down in 2018. Included in the letter were numbers for a suicide hotline. So how do you feel when you see that? I was a little taken back by that. I know they meant well, but there were four farmers in New York that killed themselves. They felt they had no recourse. And uh, something's wrong with this industry. Very wrong. For Jacques Rainville, the crisis also hits close to home. His son took over the farm several years ago when prices were high. He borrowed to buy a herd but couldn't cover his debts when the price plummeted. So he sold his cows to a startup dairy in Canada. 
and I'm the one end up buying his herb. Philippe Swenen is 39 and says supply management in Quebec allowed him to get a start in farming. We started from nothing. I didn't have nothing. You can ask anybody in here. And today, I bought two more farms, and I'm up to 47 cow, and I'm going to be up to 60 cow in the probably next six months. Dairy farming is a business that demands attention at least 12 hours a day, 365 days a year. But these four Quebec farmers say they can balance their work so they get at least one day off a week, plus vacation. Gerard Vemerlin says there's something else he notices about farms in Quebec. It, it, this is not nice what I'm going to say, but I think you people need to hear it. Go in Quebec. Drive around in the, on the country, in the countryside. Look at the farms. The tin is painted. The tractors are put away. It's not, there are nice farms in the States. I'm not saying they're all run down. But there's a lot more farms that are run down in the States than in Canada. As the conversation winds down, Hans Kaiser gives a tour of his barn where about 90 Holsteins lie on bedding or munch their mid-morning meal. The place is astonishingly clean, and Phil Parent notes it's about the same size as his farm in Vermont. Uh, Number-wise, we're very similar, and, uh, but I hate saying that my place isn't as immaculate as his place is. We try to do what we can with what we have, you know. Parent would love to work under a supply management system like his fellow farmers in Quebec enjoy, but that's proved politically impossible in the U.S. where the free market is valued. Congress did recently add a billion dollars to help fund an insurance program designed to help farmers when milk prices fall. But Jacques Rainville says it might be easier for Washington to spend a big chunk of taxpayer money than adopt a Canadian system. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon. Now on to a different kind of farming. As Maine and Massachusetts move toward full legalization of marijuana, it's creating a bit of a land rush. Cash-rich marijuana growers are snapping up warehouse space in Portland, Maine. But as Fred Bever reports, some would-be growers are moving on from Maine to Massachusetts. A few years ago, Steve Arnold, who owns two marinas outside of Portland, had his pick of heated warehouses to lease where he could store clients' boats in the winter. But then medical marijuana growers came knocking. One moved into the 120,000-square-foot facility where he was storing close to 200 boats. That's when Arnold learned just how deeply the odor of high-quality pot can work its way into a boat's upholstery. And, you know, on, on the, the pontoon boats and some of the fiberglass boats, not a big deal. But some of the bigger boats, like cruisers, you know, 28 feet and above, there was a very strong smell. That created some extra boat cleaning work. It also signaled more substantial changes to come. Arnold says his landlord continued to put a squeeze on the square footage available for boats. One year he came to me and said, hey, I want the back area. I'm going to sublease it too marijuana growers and I was like all right so that was call it 30,000 of the warehouse and then the following year he took another 20,000 so I saw the writing on the wall. Arnold figures the growers could offer twice what he paid for the rented space so he moved out and built his own boat warehouse and he's far from alone these days if you need industrial space in greater Portland 
Good luck. We're out of space. We're down to 1% vacancy now. Justin LaMontagne is a broker at the Dunham Group. In six years, he says, the vacancy rate in and around Portland has dropped to 1%, while lease and purchase prices have, in some cases, doubled. I've got conventional businesses and folks that employ hundreds of people that cannot find more space to grow any further or relocate. So it's kind of a critical point right now in the industrial market. Demand from would-be marijuana growers does seem to have eased over the last quarter or two, though. That's partly because lawmakers here have been slow to implement legalized recreational marijuana sales. Legalization, Maine voters approved in 2016. Investors are saying, look, there's no certainty around either your adult use or your medical programs in Maine right now. Hannah King is an attorney with a group called Maine Professionals for Regulating Marijuana, She says some cultivators and their investors recently abandoned Maine and set their sights instead on Massachusetts, where legalization is on a faster track. Massachusetts has essentially finalized their regulatory regime. They're planning on first sales July of 2018. And while we'd like to participate in Maine's market, we want certainty. And Massachusetts brokers do see interest emerging. Austin Smith, a Boston-based broker with Colliers International, says he's working with a handful of growers who want to secure a footprint in Massachusetts. There's a ton of cultivators swirling around, a lot of them, you know, looking at existing buildings, some of them wanting to build their own buildings. There's plenty of vacant industrial property in the Bay State, he adds, but there's still uncertainty about the ultimate shape of the state's pot regulations, which towns might bar growing or sales within their borders, And never mind whether the federal government will decide to crack down. The marijuana that's going to be supplied for recreational, you know, it's just everything is still up in the air. And, you know, I'm doing deals right now that they can tear the lease up in a year if they don't get their license. Hannah King, the legal advisor to would-be growers in Maine, says she's seen similar deals here. And she says the Maine legislature is taking steps to expand the medical marijuana market. That could justify some new investment in cultivation here. And she says her phone is actually ringing again. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. Coming up, we'll look at Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy in New England and revisit the night that James Brown saved Boston. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Fifty years ago this week, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. Although King carved his legacy out in the South, he was no stranger to New England. He earned the title Dr. King at Boston University, and he spoke at universities across Connecticut. But his introduction to New England was a hot summer picking tobacco in Simsbury, Connecticut. Dr. Stacy Close is the Associate Vice President of Equity and Diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's taught African-American history courses and frequently lectures on black Hartford history. He's a contributing essayist to African-American Connecticut Explored. Dr. Close, welcome to Next. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. So, so in June of 1944, Martin Luther King is 15 years old, and he's about to attend Morehouse College in the fall. So what's he doing here in Connecticut? Well, he, he is part of a, a stream of young Morehouse men uh, who, uh, since the World War I period, have been coming to Connecticut to work tobacco. 
uh, a lot of the young men would come up, work tobacco, and use those funds to help with their tuition. Um, but they would also, uh, as a result of that, begin to learn about life in the North, uh, a North that offered them different opportunities than they had in the South, particularly uh, not having to deal with uh, segregated signs uh, and being able to go a number of places that they could go in the North that they couldn't go uh, throughout the South. Dr. King gave a speech at the University of Hartford uh, later in his life in 1959, and he recalled that summer on the tobacco farm. He talked about some pleasant memories of Hartford and some of what uh, uh, Stacy Close just talked about. Let's listen. I come to Hartford uh, not totally a stranger because I have very pleasant memories of this city. When I was a freshman in college some 15 years ago, several of my fellow students, I joined several of my fellow students in coming to Connecticut to work for the summer on one of the tobacco farms. This was called the Coleman Brothers Farm down, uh, it's near Simsbury, Connecticut. And all week long we would work very hard and the sun was very hot and it was always a big relief for the weekend to come around when we could come to Hartford. So he mentions uh, spending his time in Hartford after spending those hot days picking tobacco. And, and you've already touched on this, but, but explain the, the stark difference that he and his uh, fellow Morehouse students would have seen in the Hartford of 1944 versus uh, any place in the South. Well, I'll start first with just the, the, the train ride north. Uh, once you cross the Mason-Dixon line, um, the, 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 the veil of, of, of racism in terms of uh, the separation of blacks and whites is lifted. Uh, on that return back, that same veil as far as rail cars uh, returns once again. And that's something that every youngster who is from Morehouse College and who is from the South will, re- will remember. Uh, And in fact, uh, Coretta Scott King writes in her autobiography about uh, the experience of Dr. King uh, here in Connecticut and what a profound impact it would have on his life. Uh, And so it's that that clear, clear um, demarcation of knowing that you're in the South versus knowing that you're in in the North. And he would spend time in Hartford uh, meeting the people who are a part of Hartford. And in fact... Um, one of the uh, restaurants that was sort of a stop-off for many, many Southerners was a place called the Cozy Spot. Uh, the Cozy Spot was originally on Windsor Street, and you could go in, and many Southerners did, including the tobacco workers, and you could get uh, cuisine that was uh, similar to what you would get in the South. Some of what we've learned about uh, his experience as he came north on the train ride came from letters that he wrote home. And, and one of the things that, that we learn is that he, he took on a, a role as a religious leader in this community of, of tobacco workers. He, he actually writes that his decision to join the ministry came about in the summer of 1944 when uh, he writes, I felt an inescapable urge to serve society. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. So he, so he really, he was drawn to the ministry in part because of his work in, in Connecticut. Yeah, he's actually uh, busy uh, teaching Sunday school for the other tobacco workers. Um, and they're sharing in song. They're sharing in um, stories from the Bible and lessons from the Bible. And he is a part of that. And then they will also go and uh, enjoy the service at the local congregational church in Simsbury. 
And occasionally, some of the tobacco workers would also find their way to Hartford, to churches like Shiloh Baptist Church. Hmm. I want to listen to a little bit more of that 1959 lecture at the University of Hartford. In, in this clip, he talks a bit about some of the political attitudes that he uh, experienced while he was up north. What I find in northern communities is a sort of quasi-liberalism, which is based on the principle of looking sympathetically at all sides. And it gets so involved in looking at all sides that it doesn't get committed to either side. It is a liberalism... It is so often a liberalism that is, that is so objectively analytical that it never gets subjectively committed. It is a liberalism that is neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. And what we need today is a true, genuine, ethical liberalism. I'm not saying that we should not look sympathetically on all sides. Every righteous man, every man of goodwill has to do that. But in the process, he discovers what is right, he discovers what is true, and he commits himself to that. Dr. Stacy Close, there's so much in just that clip that I want to talk to you about, but let, let me start here. His uh, analysis of northern politics and the way in which uh, people in Connecticut uh, view issues like race seems to be coming from someone who who has traveled quite a ways from the young man in 1944 who was so taken with the idea that he could sit at any countertop or go to any restaurant and he could eat at the finest places uh, up north. He seems to have learned something about how uh, northern policies aren't necessarily all that they seem to be. Well, he he, he is, in essence, asking uh, the nation to... Um, to be true to uh, to what it says on, on on paper for for all people, now and by by this time uh, he has read read, read widely about uh, the uh, the life of Gandhi, um, but he's also interacted a great deal with a lot of ministers from throughout the country, particularly northern ministers. By now, um, they formulated and established the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And a number of the um, members of that conference are black ministers from the north uh, who are telling him about what they're experiencing in terms of housing uh, discrimination and issues of employment discrimination in the north. And so he he, he grows to understand that as far as the movement, the movement that he is is a part of uh, will become a much larger movement. And it will force uh, people in the north to take a look at not only the South, but also take a look at the North. Yeah, the fact that segregation didn't actually stop at the Mason-Dixon line, as, as he thought uh, as, as a young man, but indeed it continued just in a different way. Absolutely. Um, if you, you looked at issues of, of redlining, if you looked at issues of employment, uh, there were issues that plagued uh, particularly uh, people in the North End of Hartford. A last thing for you, you mentioned that he, he stayed in touch with uh, a number of, of black ministers from the North, but he, he made a very a very close friend with, with one in Hartford. Can you tell us about that relationship? Well, one of the members he had a very close friendship with in Hartford was uh, Reverend Richard Battles, uh, who became pastor of uh, Mount Olive Baptist Church in, in 1960. Um, um, Battles um, had come up from Arkansas and he brought with him um, this charismatic preaching style 
And he also uh, became someone who deeply, deeply embraced the civil rights struggle. Uh, and he also um, would encourage and bring Dr. King to, uh, to Hartford on a number of occasions. Uh, one of the more um, interesting times was in 1962 uh, when Dr. King uh, came to Hartford to speak, but he didn't come alone. Uh, he was on a uh, speaking circuit uh, during that time with legendary singer Mahalia Jackson. And so he, he, he spoke and talked about the civil rights struggle, particularly what was going on in Albany. Uh, but he also talked about some of the issues that were plaguing the North. Uh, and then Mahalia Jackson um, at the Bushnell gave the audience um, some of her best uh, renditions of songs that people knew uh, in, in, in 1962. But he would also come back in 64, invited again by Reverend Battles, this time to um, deal with the problem of housing. Uh, by 1964, um, Reverend Battles and the members of Mount Olive and supporters, they were able to uh, develop um, uh, affordable housing for, for people uh, on um, Martin and Nelson streets uh, through uh, government funding. Uh, and he would return again in 1967 uh, for a, a ceremony honoring the, the work of Reverend Battles. And many times these were fundraising ventures, but it was also an opportunity uh, for him to, to speak to the North as well. Mm-hmm. Dr. Stacy Close is Associate Vice President of Equity and Diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's a contributing essayist to African American Connecticut Explored, and he joined us here to talk about the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in New England. Dr. Close, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you it. very much. On the night after Dr. King was assassinated, James Brown was scheduled to play a show at Boston Garden. Cities around the country were on edge, and Boston was bracing for riots. 14,000 young people were planning to show up at this James Brown show, and canceling was not an option. So the young mayor at the time, Kevin White, worked out a deal with a local TV station, WGBH, to broadcast James Brown live to keep residents at home. And the plan worked. James Brown is credited with saving the city that night. We called up James Sullivan, author of The Hardest Working Man, How James Brown Saved the Soul of America, to get the full story. James Sullivan, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me, John. So so why don't you set the scene for us? Uh, Dr. King, of course, had been assassinated the day before. There are nerves across the country, but certainly in Boston. Tell us a bit about what's happening leading up to the show. So the new mayor, as you mentioned, the new mayor's administration was in a panic, as a lot of uh, government officials were across the country, because they were worried about how to keep uh, distraught citizens uh, calm in the aftermath of King's assassination. So at first, the James Brown concert at the Garden was sort of the last thing on the minds of Kevin White and his administration. But it was brought to his attention by a couple of people, notably uh, a, a well-known local Boston soul DJ who, who talked to uh, the city councilor, Tom Atkins. And they both went to the mayor's office and said, you know, you might have an additional problem on your hands if, as the Boston Garden has decided to, to cancel this concert, if that happens, you're going to have thousands of kids who ha- would otherwise have had a distraction and they're going to be turned away and have to go home. And, and so, uh, you know, the, the white administration suddenly was dealing with this situation where we might be actually sort of f- adding fuel to the fire by uh, canceling this show. Some heads were put together, and the idea came about that, you know, hey, maybe we can do something about this. Maybe we can convince Mr. Brown to continue on with the show. No one seems to recall exactly who came up with the idea, but someone did suggest, let's talk to GBH and see if they can 
uh, sort of on extremely short notice, make this concert happen and also broadcast it live so that the uh, mayor, as he in fact did, could announce to the city, you know what, let's stay off the streets, let's have everybody stay home and watch the concert and, and uh, celebrate Dr. King's memory that way rather than being out on the streets. Did, did it work? Did people stay home? Because uh, in watching the concert, there's certainly some people in attendance. There were not that many people in attendance, actually. So what happened was, uh, obviously, they could have, you know, James Brown could have and would have uh, drawn twelve or 14,000 people to the garden. His most pressing concern when he first started having this conversation about having the, the show be broadcast was, how am I going to get paid? You know, if you put this show on TV, a lot of people aren't going to come that otherwise might have come, which is, in fact, what happened. Um, by most accounts, there were only about 2,000 people in attendance. But what happened was the White's administration, Kevin White's administration, made an arrangement, cut a deal with um, some of the institutional leaders around the city who were sort of uh, uh, unofficially known as the vault. He asked them to cut a check for, for James Brown so that uh, the money that Mr. Brown would have made from doing this show and selling it out would be made up. Uh, apparently, the city promised James Brown uh, uh, very quietly that they would pay him $60,000 to do the show, and um, whether or not he actually got paid, that is another point of fact that no one seems to know the answer to to this day. Let's listen to a little bit of this uh, WGBH recording. James Brown is talking to the crowd before the show, and he's trying to keep on on the message for the night. First and another thing I'd like to say, the city asked everybody to stay home and the people that want to come out, so we're still going to have a good time. Everything going to go down. You're going to hear everything that you want to hear. I can't stand myself. Please try me. Everything. But now, uh, I think we've been able to get the show taped, so when the show is over, look, I want you to go to school and get yourself together so tomorrow you have a better chance than we've had in the past. And when the show is over, go home and catch the show again. Okay? The, the stay-in-school message was really something that he had been pressing for the last few years before Dr. King was killed. You stay in school, you earn yourself an education, you earn yourself a living, you, can, you too can make money and be independent and free like I am. Let's listen to a, a, another clip from uh, the speech that James Brown gives before the concert starts. Now, the point I'm trying to make is this, is be, this show is being sponsored through the courtesy. Through the courtesy of Boston. Boston is paying, the city is paying for this. Yeah, Mr. Tom Atkins and the Honorable Mayor White to be thankful for, for doing this because they made the decision. They're spending a lot of money for the city, I'll tell you that. So give them another big round of applause, ladies and gentlemen. He, he makes sure to call out the young mayor, Kevin White. Uh, at some point, he, he calls him a swinging cat. Um, right. when, when he introduces them. But uh, the thing that's so interesting about this is, is for as big as James Brown was in 1968, Kevin White didn't really know who James Brown was before this night. Right. James Brown, by 1968, had had lots of you know, top 40 hits. But um, on the other hand, they were mostly known to sort of college age and teenagers. Uh, a man, uh, even a young mayor like Kevin White, you know, was just old enough that he was not necessarily in touch with the, with what was on the pop charts. And the funny story goes that when he was first informed that James Brown was playing at the Boston Garden uh, the night after Dr. King was killed, Kevin White's first reaction was, do you mean Jim Brown, the football player, who was a pro football player at the time? 
But this concert, you know, I think it's grown in stature over the years. Almost every other city in the country experienced sad incidents, um, tough incidents on the street. The fact that Boston was able to stay relatively calm and quiet um, has everything to do with um, the fact that, uh, you know, the, the, the Kevin White administration was able to cut this deal to get uh, the James Brown concert broadcast live that night. Uh, James Sullivan. He's a contributor to The Globe. He's a freelance journalist, and he's the author of the book, The Hardest Working Man, How James Brown Saved the Soul of America. He's been talking about how he perhaps saved Boston that night after the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, James Sullivan, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. If you'd like to hear more, a recording from that night is available on the WGBH archives. We'll have a link on nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a historical tour of New England architecture within just a few blocks. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. The icons of New England architecture are present in almost every small town. White-steepled churches, wood-framed farmhouses, broad town greens, and ancient stone walls. Author and architect Duo Dickinson is fascinated by these details, where the rocky landscape and religious foundations shaped the way we build here. His newest book is A Home Called New England, A Celebration of Hearth and History. We met Duo in Madison, Connecticut, a shoreline community founded back in 1641. Here, within just a few square miles, you can take a tour of the region's unique architectural styles. And we started right in his backyard. Where are we right now? You are in downtown Madison, Connecticut, and you're on one of the one of the estuaries, one of the rivers that actually the Fence Creek that goes into Long Island Sound. And these are all over coastal Connecticut, and they, they go down into the sound, and they connect with salt water. So the water that, that comes in and out with the tides actually comes in and out under Route 1 and ends up flooding this place. Well here, when we built, bought this land in 1982, this was the worst glacial moraine land imaginable. It was really a horrible place to think ever about farming. And we built this box in uh, 1984 and then we added to the box in 1989 and then we added a um, house. And in that tradition, which is the tradition that an author named Hubka uh, came up with that, that, that was little house, big house, back house, barn. Uh, people that have moved to New England have started small. We only had a one bedroom, one bath house. We then expanded for kids. Then when the kids got older, we realized we had to move or we had to make a place for the kids to expand into their lives. So we built a, a effectively a thousand square foot barn. I, I want to ask you more about the, the, the big house, little house. Back house barn. Back house barn. There's a lot of life, especially right along this part of the Connecticut shoreline that is like this, where you see what, what seem to be pretty inhospitable places for building, but really? with a lot of little, a lot of little houses. I mean, I guess I'm, I'm wondering how people first got the idea that it's, it's okay to build a big house, let alone a little house, on this rocky moraine overlooking what was at the time just marshland and eventually a kind of a garbage dump. Well, you could make a case that 400 years ago when settlers came, they were not coming for anything other than to be closer to God. 
this place is actually a refuge for zealots. And so when they came, they thought they were, they, they were going to be taken care of by manna from heaven, that God would provide for them, that they were here because they were God's chosen people on earth. They came into a largely vacant landscape, and what they found was, because this place had been scraped and crushed and altered by glaciers 20,000 years ago, they found enormously inhospitable dirt, but then it was also the Little Ice Age. So this Little Ice Age that they came into made the winters about 10 or 20 degrees colder on average than what we have now. And they lasted really for six or eight months of, of non-growing seasons. So there was one short growing season for this. So the idea of subsistence farming, which is really all they could do, was subsistence farming was really compromised by the landscape. And so those little outposts where they, where they clung to each other and made a, a fairly tight housing uh, situation spread around the town centers, which had a green, around the town centers, and enabled them to eke out a living for a couple centuries before uh, the infrastructure got good enough that they could access the better land to the west of us and actually completely change the paradigm of what we're doing more to an early industrial middle-class economy. And that's, that's how New England changed. And this is, this is really what they confronted. I wanted to show you this because this really is a swamp, and it's a swamp with rocks. So, so big house, yeah. it's, it's been here since 1910. Yeah, and built by by torn down pieces of other houses. I've renovated that house for four different owners. And basically that, was, that, that, that place was built with maybe four or five different torn down homes, you know, sticks and boards. It's made out of all of these other things. So the, the materials in that house, much older than 1910. Oh gosh. And the one thing that I would love people to take away from the book, there is a unique New England personality. It isn't courier knives and cute and sweet and isn't this nice, let's bring some nutmeg to people. It's the swamp Yankee. It's the swamp Yankee, which is, to me, the model of what sustainability is. Because the swamp Yankee says, never have anything you don't need, never throw out anything you might need, and also spend time and money and resources on, on things, resources on things you do need now and will need later. So spend a lot, do a lot, commit a lot to make things that use less energy later, later, and later. So the idea that you would never do a teardown in old-time New England, that you would never buy a really fancy car in old-time New England, that is of us. We are the swamp Yankee state. We aren't the career knife state. <laughs> so what we'll do is I think we'll, we'll go out here and take a right at the light that's right there, yep. and then we'll just take that left. Great talk about stone walls because stone oh, walls are actually a thing. There are 234,000 linear miles of stone walls in Connecticut in only 63,000 square miles of area. So you've got this enormous system of stone walls that people think is picturesque and cute and nice and sometimes it's along a road but most often those stone walls are now trapped in fallow farmland. They are essentially remnants. They are an historical marker of a time that's gone when the hope was, and that's why New England at one time was 80% deforested. Think about that for a minute. 80% of the trees were gone from all of New England, and New England only had three viable farming areas. The three river valleys up around Champlain, the Connecticut River Valley, and another river valley in, New in Rhode Island. Those places, great farmland, flat, nice, arable. The rest of it was like this, glacial moraine. Well, 
if you're going to clear land and it's a glacial moraine, you've got stone walls. Well, when you realize there's 30 inches of topsoil, you know, 500 or 700 miles to the west, you stop farming that, at least most people did. And even though they created farms like Shelburne Farms, the Vanderbilts did up in Shelburne, Vermont, which tried to use new animal husbandry and even new tools to sort of make industrial agribusiness work to go beyond subsistence farming into production farming, it failed. It simply failed. And that failure, that enormous effort over really three centuries, that enormous failure has, I think, as its most effective um, elegaic uh, and antique uh, vestige these stones. So I, but I want to, I want to understand what you're saying. So I've always understood that the stone walls that we see throughout New England were meant to delineate the the farms from from one another, but but not necessarily to to keep anything from moving across it. And we see them in now heavily yep. forested. Uh, woods because everything was deforested. It was it was pastures, and now the stone walls are there. But but you're saying that this enormous amount of effort is a is a remnant of a type of failure of trying to do something that you learned you you just couldn't do over centuries. Stone walls are to me the largest physical remnant of human failure in the world, maybe except for the pyramids. It's the single largest complex of embodied human energy that it now serves literally no purpose. But there are also so many beautiful details. Oh my gosh. In in let's oh. just say many of the of the homes that you've shown oh us my gosh. so far today, the churches, uh, the New England architecture is filled with detail that really is nothing more than purely decorative if right. you if you get right down to it and in some cases hasn't held up all that 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 terribly well how, how are stone walls any different stone walls are different because they were i think well i know that they were necessary you had to get rid of the stones to grow stuff so there wasn't an option of making something beautiful you just made something amazing stone walls uh, th that were done mostly because it wasn't enough just to simply take the rocks and mound them they actually said, well, let's make them so they last for a very long time. So they interlocked them, they battered them, they gave them a real base so that even though the went, ground came and went because of freeze-thaw, they wouldn't fall apart. They would, they, would, they would be stout and stable. And they ended up making what, I would, what you call a marker into a feature, an architectural feature, because you would actually be having cleared land and seeing this edge and you wanted to look at something, this is my impression, that you felt good about. You put all this time into getting this stuff to a place, you might as well have it not look like a rock pile. You wanted it to feel like it was something you and your predecessors and your successors have made over time that was embodied your hopes and plans and future desires for your legacy. My take is that forgetting about the abstraction of the walls, you know, the surfaces, the light, the crenellations, the, the ad hoc and yet organized quality of the walls and the up and the undulation and the linearity and all the things that make contrast and, and all the rest. I f believe that you feel the humanity of this without knowing it. Because you know that's not just nature. That's nature herded and organized and in fact worshipped by man and saying, 
we're, we're making this our place in this world because this is what we do. We make things flat, we give them edges, we make them give us perspective of the buildings we built and also, also venerate God above us. Mm -hmm. And so they, that beauty has to, I think, do with the fact that we implicitly understand that we're different from the dogs and the cows and the flies, that, they, that we make things that are of us versus that just support us. They actually have to have a component to them which we like. So that's just me. Oh. And I do, I do honestly think that because New England's been around for 400 years, the one natural element here, which I don't think is anywhere else in the country, and no one's contradicted me when I say this, the one natural element which is inescapable and I think actually is empowering, it's also humbling, is that there's not a day that anybody who lives here in New England has that they don't essentially touch and live among history. History is just as much a natural element in New England as the sun is, as the stone wall is. History, all the people that have gone before you are embodied in the places where we live and drive because the physical manifestations are here. I think other parts of the country are just as, as the movie Field of Dreams says, things come along, they plow over things and they go and America reinvents itself and America reinvents itself and it's changed and over and over. Well, I think New England builds upon itself. I think it actually has that, that deep history that I think allows it to have a certain cultural characteristic which is unprecedented anywhere in America. That is part of the New England ethic where there, we have our feet on the ground, we know where the rocks are, we're here, and we will work to make things happen here. We're not going to wipe it clean. And that's why I think New England is unique. That was architect Duo Dickinson walking us around Madison, Connecticut. His new book is called A Home Called New England, a celebration of hearth and history. Visit nextnewengland.org for an aerial video of one of the stops on our tour with Duo. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Ryan Karen King, Lily Tyson, and Ali Oshinsky. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.